Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like fleas, snot, and dentists. Sam, I am totally phobic of dentists, so I hate the idea of doing that, except dentists are all about the invention of the smile, and of course, the smile is all about the French Revolution. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of fire is in fact all about the Spanish Armada? Or that the history of fish, yes, fish, is in fact all about Roman luxury? We've done a podcast on the history of fire, haven't we? So everyone check out that in our back catalogue. The man sitting opposite me will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Well, this is yet another episode in our special homeschooling series for kids. And it's in each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we're going to prove that it does. And today, I'm so excited about this, we're going to do surnames. Oh, I love the history of names. I remember ages ago, ages ago, I'm very old now, hearing a paper, a talk by a man wonderfully called... Scott Smith Bannister, and it was all about names and naming practices <laughs> in 16th century England. And embarrassingly enough, I had to admit, I have to admit that I can recall absolutely nothing about what he said at the time. However, I do have his book <laughs> on my bookshelf, but the history of names has a fascinating history, doesn't it, Sam? It does. You can think about it all sorts of ways. I and mean, one of my favourite ways is to think about it in terms of nicknames in the Viking world. Uh, and the Vikings are very, uh, very keen on their nicknames and lots and lots of them have survived over time. My favourite of those Viking nicknames was the wonderful Swedish king who was called Eric Weatherhat, which is such a brilliant oh. name. And he was known, this says so much about their um, the way they lived their lives on their boats and their navigating and their trading. Um, he was known to be able to change the weather simply by turning around his hat. And I think that's a pretty cool superpower. Excellent. Well, for me, the history of names is what is often most difficult 
about studying women's history. And women's history, as well as being a Tudor expert, a professor of Tudor history, I'm also a professor of women's history. And one of the difficult things for studying women in the 16th and 17th century is the way in which they are constantly changing their names. So it's very difficult to recover them in the archives. They have maiden names, married names. When they remarry, they have names. When they have titles, so they marry into the aristocracy, they have different names. So take, for example, Bess of Hardwick. This was a woman who lived from 1527 to 1608. She's known colloquially as Bess of Hardwick because of her birth and the house that she built. She was born as Elizabeth Hardwick. She then had four husbands. Her first husband was Robert Barlow, so she changed her name to Elizabeth Barlow. She then married Sir William Cavendish and became Lady Elizabeth Cavendish. She then, as her third husband, married William St. Low and became Elizabeth Lady St. Low. And then she married George Talbot, the sixth Earl of Shrewsbury. And at that point, she became Elizabeth Talbot, Countess of Shrewsbury. So it's incredibly difficult to follow her changing names through the archives. Very, very difficult indeed. It's interesting, isn't it, when people change their names officially like that. It makes me think of the popes, because when you become a pope, you adopt a name of... of um what your, I, I don't know the phrase actually, you, what your name of your Pope will be, who you will become. Yes. Uh, and and there's um there's a limited number of, of, of selections available. I don't actually know how it works, but it has made me think that, I, I know that Sixtus V, for example, Sixtus V was the Pope during the Spanish Armada. And I bet there's a fascinating history in how Popes selected their names. Yes. I also love the fact that names and titles of names can suggest something about your own history. So um, I am a doctor, so uh, not a medical doctor, I'm a doctor of history. So you know that I've got a PhD in history. We know James is a professor of history. That says a great deal about the amount of work he has done in whether it's women's history or Tudor history, whatever it was, that allowed you to have your title. And it's the same with medical doctors. You think about medical doctors. They get the chance to call themselves a doctor because at an earlier stage in their life they have dedicated a certain amount of time to studying medicine and have passed the necessary exams. Also happens in the military, whether you're an admiral in the navy or a captain in the army, whatever it might be. That rank suggests a great deal about your ability and probably something about what's happened in the past. You maybe have excelled at some point and earned your promotion. So I think those kind of names are yes, fascinating as well. absolutely fascinating. And you are in fact a doctor doctor. You're not just a single doctor, you're a doctor doctor. You are a, an official, official, official doctor for the PhD that you did. And you are also an honorary doctorate of the University of Plymouth. Yeah, yeah, very proud of that I am too. There are also um, adopting names like Caesar and um, and also the Napoleons as well. And um, that's really interesting. So there are more Napoleons than just Napoleon Bonaparte because the title Napoleon became hereditary in the same way that Caesar did um, with all of those who followed that great Roman emperor. But today we're going to be talking about names because we were inspired to do so by our recent podcast on show-offs when we did Norman castles about how the Normans were showing off in their landscape about their victory and about 
the, the fact they were going to be staying on in England in the English landscape. And it made us realise that we could do one dedicated to names. My name is Sam Willis and James's name is James Daybell. And there's an excellent website you all guys can have a, have a quick look at called thehouseofnames.com. And you can search your name and it will say a little bit about it. This is what it says about Willis. Willis is a name of ancient Norman origin. It arrived in England with the Norman conquest of 1066. The Willis family lived in Berkshire. Their name is derived from the old English word well, meaning a well, and indicates the original bearer's residence near such a facility. So the Willis family were so named for existing near wells, which is not that surprising. Um, I took the liberty of typing in Daybell, James. Well, Do you want to, want to know what it says about uh, you? A very, very ancient uh, and noble name, I imagine. <laughs> um, Daybell is a name of Anglo-Saxon origin, apparently. I'm not sure I believe that, actually. And came from the baptismal name Theobald, which was an ancient personal name. After the Norman Conquest, the old English naming system gradually dissolved. Old English names became less common and were replaced by popular continental European names. The earliest surnames in England were found shortly after the Norman Conquest and are of French origin rather than native English origins. But the surname Daybell, here we go, it was first found in the Doomsday Book of 1086. Several bearers of Daybell as a personal name were recorded as landowners after the Norman Conquest, particularly in Huntingdonshire, Cambridgeshire and Suffolk. The first recorded instance of Daybell as a surname occurred in 1199, where Thomas Theobald was living in Gloucestershire. So that's why we've decided to do names, because the way that the English have their surnames has fundamentally changed since the Norman Conquest of 1066. So while we're doing this, everyone think about your names. Previously, the Anglo-Saxons used something called by names. Um, and a, a by name and a surname are very similar. But the difference is that a by name is not passed down to the next generation. So I'm Sam Willis. My son is called Felix Willis. My daughter is called B Willis. So they inherited the name of the Willises. Nonetheless, the by name and the surname are both based on a similar idea. So you're identified by the way uh, you look or personality or occupation or the place where you lived. For example, like something in the landscape or, or the name of a nearby pub. Actually, one interesting ex um, exercise would be to give yourself a new name based on where you live now or what you look like or how you are. Do you have red hair? Could you be the redhead? Could you live near a well like the Willises? Whatever it might be. But this all changes with the Norman Conquest. And it's fascinating thinking about why that happens. One of the things that William needs to do is to bring the entire country under his control. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And he was very clever about it. And one of his main things he did was he redistributed all of the land in the country. And the land all technically belonged to him, but he granted the use of that land to others who would be loyal to him. Despite most of the Anglo-Saxon, uh, the high-ranking lords, were actually killed at the Battle of Hastings. So all of these new ruling classes, the leading lords, were all Norman. And one belief is that the adoption of names, the surname, the hereditary surname, is to tie people more strongly to the land 
upon which they lived, which I think is a fascinating idea. But it brings in a whole new pool of Norman surnames. So the Anglo-Saxon ones tend to, to uh, disappear. And they're not just Anglo-Saxon, they're more um, Anglo-Norse, very influenced by the Vikings. And those are names like Wolfric or Harold or Ulf or Alfred or Edgar. And they're replaced by much more traditional French Norman names. These to our ears sound English. Robert, Henry, Richard or William. So there we go. That is how names changed. And um, I've got here a wonderful list of Anglo-Norman surnames. Uh, James, give me a letter. Give me a letter. Z. <laughs> there is one. Zouch. Z-O-U-C-H. I've never heard before. Um, Neville, very clearly a French name. Pomeroy looks and sounds French as well. Uh, St. Clair, Seymour. All of these are French names. I absolutely love it. Right, give me another letter. U. U. You're being very, very tricksy. I am. There's none. There's no W. <laughs> w. Ah, ha, ha. Here we go. Ah, Wallace, Warren, Warmby, Wilburn, Wally or Wivel. All Norman. Um, so I would encourage you all to think about your names. Do you reckon you've got a Norman surname? Does it sound a little French? One of the most interesting ones is Disney, which I've come across. Oh. And that is actually linked to a French location. So if you imagine it written in French, D apostrophe, I-S-N-E-Y. So that's from the area called Isny in France. Mm. So these names, it actually raises an important point, And that is about continuity and change with the Norman arrival in England. We talked so much about castles and how the landscape was fundamentally changed by the Normans building castles everywhere. They also built huge stone churches, abbeys and cathedrals to demonstrate their, their commitment to the new religion and also to make it clear that no one was to forget that they were not going to go anywhere. And the names is something that changed as well. Other things changed. Um, the with the new cathedrals were being built, the thanes and the house carls they were known as, these were the, the right-hand man of the king. They actually tried to protect Harold at the Battle of Hastings. Those were replaced by knights and also by knightly service. Um, an idea of jury service, very important in our justice system, was also introduced by the Normans. Crown wearings. This is an interesting one. William wore his crown much more than previous Anglo-Saxon kings, so you could visibly see his, his, his royal body in person. But there was also, and this is the key point, there was a great deal of continuity after the Normans. So even though people's names changed, the landscape looked different, the judicial system was different, some things were deliberately kept the same. So William I's coronation, the ceremony, was very, very similar indeed to that of Edward the Confessor's. So William wanted to demonstrate that there was a strong line of continuity between him becoming king and his predecessor on the English throne, Edward the Confessor. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Edward the Confessor's laws also changed. So was the use of shires and hundreds to divide up England and crucially the use of royal mints. William, these are they, the, like the, the factories that made money. William I used the same mints as the Anglo-Saxon kings to make sure there was a strong element of continuity through the economic system. So yes, the Normans invaded. Yes, they did change things, but some crucial things didn't change. There we go, James. Excellent, excellent. Now, one of the reasons that we know so much about Norman England from this period is because of something called the Doomsday Book, which was produced in 1086. And this is a very old government record, and it survives in Kew in London at the National Archives. And in fact, there are two Doomsday Books, not just one, there is the Little Doomsday Book, which is quite small, has a few counties in it, and the Great Doomsday Book. And together, they contain an awful lot of information about landholding and who held what in England in the 11th century. Now, it all began in 1086 because King William I, King William the Conqueror, wanted to find out about all the new land that he had in his kingdom. And importantly, and this is where the names come in, he wanted to know the names of those people who owned property. He wanted to know what property they owned. And he also wanted the names of everyone else who lived on that property. And also, he wanted to know how much the land was worth. And therefore, importantly for him, being a man who needed money, how much he could charge in tax. So what he did was he sent out official government inspectors around England to ask questions in local courts. Now, a little bit of background to this. When he conquered England, William took all the land and all the important jobs in the church and in the government away from the Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons, and he gave it to his Norman followers, the people who had come across from Normandy with him. As you heard in our last episode on castles, he built castles at strategic points across the country so that people would be scared and wouldn't dare to think about causing any trouble. This was all very expensive. As you could imagine, invading and conquering cost a lot of money. And by about 1085, William was running short of money. So he needed to work out how much he had in order to then extract it out of the country. The other big problem that he had was by 1085, many of the Normans who he had rewarded with land disagreed with themselves over who was going to get what. And so the Doomsday Book was part of William's solution in order to put these disputes to rest once and for all. And in December of 1085, William met with his great council. This was a team of advisers. 
they met in the town of Gloucester and they talked about how they should solve these problems. And at the meeting, William decided to order a survey of the country. It would list all the landowners, their tenants, the land they held. It would describe any other people from villagers to slaves. And it would describe how the land was used, whether there were woods on it, whether it was meadowland, whether there were animals. It also said what buildings were upon it, whether mills, churches, castles, all of these things were to be recorded. So it was a brilliant snapshot in time. And the survey, importantly, would show William the wealth of his money. And even more importantly still, it would show him the amount of money that he'd be able to raise in taxation from the people. And we know about this practice because of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is one of the most important documents of this period. And in it was written, King William sent his men all over England into every shire and had them find out how many hundred hides there were in each shire. Hide was a measurement of land or what land and cattle the king himself had in the country and what dues he ought to have in the 12 months from the shire. In other words, what money they could get in taxation from the shire over a year. He also recorded how much land his archbishops had, and his bishops, and his abbots, and his earls, how much each man who was a landowner in England had in land or livestock, and how much money it was worth. Now, he sent people around to gather all this information. As you can imagine, we're looking at fairly minute detail here at a very local level. And this was something that isn't particularly easy. And it was made all the more difficult because of two things. Firstly, very few people in England could read or write at this time. It was generally only the people in the church or the government who were able to read or write. And also, there were language difficulties because people in England spoke Saxon English, whereas the Normans spoke Norman French or Latin. And so they needed somebody reliable who could understand and translate what the English was saying. So it was a very difficult job. And what they needed was local people in the church and in local government who could collect this information and ensure that it was accurate. Now, this process was done in a series of four different stages. All the Norman lords would, first of all, who'd been given the land by William, were asked to gather details about their lands, and the information was sent back to William's advisers. The second stage was that William then sent officials, or groups of officials, to most parts of the country to check up that these Norman lords were actually not lying to him, to check up the details of what they were saying. And they were told also at this time to get more information. There was then a third stage. When they'd finished questioning a village, the officials sent their findings to William's advisers. And the findings may have been given to King William on August 1086. What happens then is that a fourth stage, everything is all gathered together 
and it's written up into the two volumes of the Doomsday Book. The Great Doomsday Book and the Little Doomsday Book. And this tells you exactly what important details there are to include. And it's very interesting to think about this process of writing up. We know that in the Great Doomsday Book it was written by one scribe. One scribe for an enormous amount of work and checked by a second. Whereas the Little Doomsday Book, which people think was written first, was the work of at least six different people. It was written not on paper, like nowadays. Instead, it was written on sheepskin parchment. And these sheepskins, there were about 900 of them all used to make the Doomsday Book. And they were soaked in a lime solution to prepare them. And, they, and you had to scrape off any animal hairs and then the skins were stretched out over wooden frames, left to dry so that you had parchment. And the one advantage of parchment is that it's very hard wearing. Now, they didn't have ballpoint pens or retractable biros or anything like that. Instead, scribes would write with a quill made out of a goose feather. And ink, they couldn't just go to the shops and buy ink. Ink was made out of the juices of plants and leaves. And ink in the Doomsday Book was made out of oak galls, which was ground down, mixed with water, and then it could be used to write with. It's also interesting to know that the language that was used for the Doomsday Book was Latin rather than English or French, because Latin was the language of the church, and the church had control over language and and writing, and it was also the language of government, and was so up until Victorian times in the 19th century. Now, which places are included? We know that some 13,000 places are recorded in the Doomsday Book. Many of them still survive today, and it describes almost all of England, but there are certain places that don't get included, such as County Durham and Northumberland, and a few places in, in North Wales. But most very important towns were surveyed. And I'll give you an example of one of these entries so that you get a sense of what you can find out. And this is an extract from the Great Doomsday Book showing a survey entry of a place called Preston Hundred in Sussex. And it reads in translation, in Preston Hundred, William holds Patcham himself in lordship. Earl Harold held it before 1066. Then it answered for 60 hides, in other words, that measurement of land. Now for 40. Land for 80 ploughs. In lordship, 8 ploughs. 163 villagers and 45 landholders with 82 ploughs. A church, six slaves, ten shepherds, meadow, 84 acres, woodland, 100 pigs, 26 sites at Lewis at 13 shillings. Richard holds seven hides of this land and a man-at-arms of his half a hide. In lordship they have two ploughs with two small holders. Total value before 1066, £100. Later, 50 Now, 80. So from this detailed information, we can learn a little bit about how people lived. 
We can learn the different types of people that there were. We can know whether there are villains, in other words, villains, feudal tenants or borders. These are people who hold land, just enough, just about enough land to feed a family or slaves, how they earned their living in farming. Um, we also know a lot about Norman control. So by studying it, we can find that it was the Normans who controlled the land of England. In 1086, only a handful of people, of English people, held land. King William and his tenants-in-chief, or the church, had most of it. In fact, it's striking that before 1066, most of the land was originally owned by 2,000 Saxons. But afterwards, in 1086, it belonged to 200 Norman barons, which shows just how powerful the Norman lords had become. And back to our names. If you have a look at the surnames in the Doomsday Book of 1086, it records the names of many of the major landowners, and these being mainly Norman, Breton and Flemish conquerors of England in 1086. And these surnames derive mainly from the home estates of these lords in Normandy, and they've remained a distinctive class of surnames throughout English history. And they include Baskerville, Darcy, Mandeville, Neville, Percy and Talbot. Such wonderful names. I'm, I'm actually looking at just a, a list of names um, which feature in the Doomsday Book here. And uh, my favourite one is Thunder. What a brilliant surname. Also, Sock, I really like. <laughs> and, and Thunder, Sock, Savage, Mouse. Um, so many wonderful names that we now know have been brought across by the Normans. So everyone, I hope you've enjoyed that. If you want to do more, do please look at the page for the Doomsday Book on the National Archives, the brilliant National Archives website. It's nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash doomsday. That's D-O-M-E-S-D-A-Y. Um, and just to be interested in your surname is the first step of being able to investigate the, the history of your family. And there are all sorts of wonderful online resources to do um, to explore that. And it's a really wonderful, wonderful exercise. And we have a couple of tasks for you. The first is find your village in the Doomsday Book online and have a look and see, write down the surnames of the kids in your class and see if you can work out how many of them might have French origins. And secondly, have a look at old place names in the Doomsday Book and see if they are still around today. Are there any Saxon or Norman place names in your area? And the final thing is think about how a Doomsday Book might work today. Write a modern entry for your local area or town or village, anywhere that you want, and list all the questions that you would need to ask and think about how you would collect that information. Who lives there? How many houses are there? What kind of shops are there? Are there parks? All of those things that you would need to do in order to report back to the king or the queen today exactly what the place where you lived looked like.
What a fun exercise. I wish I could do that. I could take some time off and survey my local city. Exactly. Thank you all for listening, guys. Do check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. We're on social media. Do come and make friends with us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. We hope to hear from you soon. Bye now. Bye, guys. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.